Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Our guest today is a writer, lawyer, speaker, and an advocate. Cassie Chambers grew up in eastern Kentucky, graduated from Yale College, the Yale School of Public Health, the London School of Economics, and Harvard Law School, where she was president of the Harvard Legal Aid Bureau, a student-run law firm that represents low-income clients. Cassie received a Skadden Fellowship to return to Kentucky to do legal work with domestic violence survivors in rural communities. And in 2018, Cassie helped pass Jeanette's Law, which eliminated the requirement that domestic violence survivors pay an incarcerated spouse's legal fees in order to get a divorce. Her new book, Hill Women, Finding Family and a Way Forward in the Appalachian Mountains, celebrates the amazingly resilient women in her family— and the beloved mountain culture that helped shape her. Cassie Chambers, welcome to Words Matter. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So we've read a lot of books for this podcast, and I am fortunate to have the luxury to pick the ones that I am interested in and topics of personal interest for me. So even with those high expectations, your book greatly exceeded them. Thank you. It's an amazing book. And since it's a memoir, we wanted to start with you and and a little bit of your background. You grew up helping your grandparents share crop on a tobacco farm in Osley County, Kentucky. Talk about the world that you grew up in. Yeah. So Owsley County is one of the poorest counties in America. It is a place where the disability rate is high, the average income is low. And it's a place that when the outside world looks at it or thinks about it, they think about the problems and the challenges. And so what I wanted to do in this book is show the creativity and the positives and the grit and really provide sort of an empathetic look at some of these struggling mountain communities. So the women in the book take kind of front and center stage here, your mother, your grandmother, and your Aunt Ruth are the focus of your book. Talk about their stories and how they influenced you. Yeah. The story really starts with my grandmother. Uh, I called her Granny. And she was uh, she had a third grade education and lived in a house that was so cold that when she would wake up in the morning, her blankets would be frozen solid. And she wanted desperately to be able to do better for her own children. My granny was married at 15. She started having kids right away. She eventually had seven. She never played. She never went to the mall. She never had time for any of those child activities. And so she tried to do better for the next generation. My mom was the sixth of seven kids and the first one to be able to graduate from high school and go on and get a free education at Berea College. And my mom also grew up in extreme poverty. You know, she used to ask her mom why Santa Claus hated her because she never got Christmas presents. And my mom was able to have the opportunity to graduate high school and go on to college in part because of her sister, her older sister, Aunt Ruth. And Aunt Ruth was someone who wanted an education for herself, but because of a variety of factors, she had to work on the tobacco fields. The family wasn't in the position to be able to sort of spare her to continue to go to school. And so between my granny and my Aunt Ruth, they really came together to make sure that my mom had the opportunity to go and get this education, which changed her life and changed my life as well. 
Right. And that was a part of an ongoing conversation you had with your mom throughout her life and the impact that that had on her. Was she always open about that experience? I mean, I know you lived it, especially with your close relationship with your grandmother and your aunt. But how often did she speak to you about that? And was that an ongoing conversation in your relationship with her? Yeah. So she, from the time I was little, she always told me how important it was to get an education. And all the women in my family did because they had valued it so highly for so long. And so from the time I was little, it was, you know, education is how you change your life. Education is how things get better. You have to go and get an education. I didn't realize sort of the the way that our story of education and my family's story was interesting or different or important until I started writing the book. And honestly, it was as I began to see all of these portrayals of Appalachia and I realized that my take on it was a little bit different. And that's when I realized that this story was something that was worth telling. One day you came across a brochure for an international boarding school in New Mexico. Can you talk about what happened next? Yeah. So I got this brochure. And my mom had always told me, you got to pursue educational opportunities. And this brochure was for a school that had 200 students from almost 100 different countries called the United World College. And it was free for every student that got admitted. And then it also helped provide very generous college scholarships for the students that graduated from this boarding school. So I applied. At that point, I had not traveled very much at all. I had been to Florida to visit some family members and California to visit some family members. But the thought of going and living somewhere far away from home with all of these students from all of these different countries was very much outside of my immediate experience. And so I applied and I got in and then I went and I lived there for two years. And what was your experience like there? It was incredible. I think... The school focused on letting students learn about the world from each other, which I think is a great way to really experience what different cultures are, is to have people from them tell you about it. And I think that's the best education you can get is just the the gift of being able to sit down and spend time with people and hear about where they're from and the challenges that their communities are facing. And even today, it has made the world feel much smaller to me in a lot of ways because when I say, oh, I'd like to go to France or, oh, I'd like to go to Norway, I know someone who lives there. And so it's a nice excuse to be able to travel to see friends. So not long after that experience, you transferred to Yale. And even though you arrived there more than four decades after women were first admitted in 1969, you wrote that Yale felt like a place where men belonged more than women, where male voices matter a bit more than female ones. How much did that surprise you and did that change during your time there? Yeah, I think it it did surprise me. I had never been in that sort of privileged environment before, and so there was a lot that surprised me about going to Yale, about what it felt like to be in these places that are very, very privileged, that I think the world recognizes as very, very privileged. The male aspect of it was something I began to realize over time. It was while I was there that Yale made national headlines because some of the fraternities had their pledges march to the women's table, which is a monument to women at Yale, and make these very derogatory comments about women. And I began to realize the way that fraternities controlled a lot of the social scene at Yale. And of course, those were all male. And just the way that the culture centered around these male institutions was definitely something new and different for me. Talk about going to law school and joining the Harvard Legal Aid Bureau. 
Yeah. So I think for a long time, I thought that I had escaped my rural mountain town. So I was in these privileged institutions and I felt a little ashamed of my mountain roots and of my humble background. And it wasn't until I started working at the Harvard Legal Aid Bureau that I was really able to reconnect with that part of myself and realize that there is so much strength in people who are struggling to make ends meet in Mm. poverty. And it is something to be proud of, the ability to do what needs to be done despite these challenges. And working with these low-income women who were in the middle of crises and being able to help them navigate the legal system really helped me feel connected to my identity and gave me a real pride in where I came from. And that's why I decided to return back home to Kentucky to continue doing that kind of work. You said in the beginning you felt ashamed, which I think is something a lot of women in particular can probably resonate with. Was it something akin to imposter syndrome? Did you feel like you were out of place? How did I get here? Yeah, I think it was definitely that. And then I think when you're in a privileged environment like Yale or like Harvard, everyone is trying to act like they belong and you get positive feedback whenever you kind of fit into that mold. And so I would tell people, I grew up on a farm and say we had horses and hope that they would assume that I was some sort of rich horse heiress instead of saying, you know, it was a small mountain farm and our horses and mules were were nowhere near racehorses. <laughs> That's something I think a lot of people go through in their early 20s as well. Just this idea of how do you fit in? How do you belong? Who am I? What do I stand for? And I feel lucky that I was able to sort of reconnect with my identity and being an Appalachian woman. And you did have horses growing up, just not yes. the racehorse kind. Not the racehorse kind, the kind that, you know, pull plows and do yeah. farm work and all work of that horses. kind of stuff. Exactly. Work horses. <laughs> I had a couple of those in Georgia, too, far from far from racehorses. Yeah. Not the expensive kind. So as a graduate of Harvard Law School, and this is revisiting some of what you just said, you could have gone anywhere. You could have lived anywhere and done anything involving the law. And you decided to go home to Kentucky in part from this attachment that you found yourself through um, going back and and doing that kind of work there. Where did the focus on domestic violence victims come from? And is that what led you back primarily? Yeah. So I was doing that work at the Harvard Legal Aid Bureau, working with low-income domestic violence survivors. It's one of the ways that I think lawyers can make a real tangible difference is Not everyone is guaranteed a lawyer for civil right cases or for civil court cases. I think everyone hears on TV the line, you have a right to an attorney, and they assume that that applies to all types of law. But for things like divorce and eviction and these things that are on our civil court system, you only get an attorney through these sort of nonprofits and these legal aid organizations. And so I was doing that work in Boston, and I felt like I was really having this tangible difference on women's lives. I was able to help keep them safe when they were leaving abusive relationships. And I was able to make it as supportive of an experience for them as as I could. And I felt really proud of that work. And I realized that in cities like Boston and in cities like New York and D.C., there are a lot of different organizations doing that kind of work to help low-income women. But in Kentucky, there are just fewer people doing the work. The organization that I ended up working for, the Louisville Legal Aid Society, was based in a city. And when I started, I was the only full-time family law lawyer 
going out to service a 12 county service area. Mm. And so a lot of these women, when you have these services concentrated in cities, it's very hard for people in rural parts of America to be able to get to those cities to access those services. They might not be able to afford a car or repairs to their car or gas. And so it was a real privilege to be able to go out and fill this need that exists in a lot of rural America where it's really hard for people to access the few social services that do exist. And did it grow from you being the only family law attorney in those 12 counties, or is that still the hustle that's happening right now? There are efforts. I believe that there are some other lawyers that are part-time allocated in those county areas now, which I think is a good thing. And increasingly, the movement in legal services is to hold more clinics to help people represent themselves more. Yeah. And so there are a lot of efforts like that that I think are being successful. And I think the more that there's an awareness within the legal aid community about the challenges of of rural access to justice issues, I think there's more of a push to allocate resources that way. Yeah. I will say I'm the most proud of the work that I've done with with women and children victims of domestic violence in my practice that really spans a lot of topics and is in is in the big law world, but the the pro bono work that I've been able to do in that sphere is the most most important and has made me the most proud. Although it's a good point that we're in a city in D.C. where ease of access, although still limited, is probably much easier than in rural Kentucky and in rural Georgia where where I'm from. So that's something to think about. So what is Jeanette's law and, and what was your role in making it a reality? So Jeanette was one of my clients that I had when I was doing this work. And she was someone who had uh, experienced a long history of domestic violence from her husband. And he came home one day and he was drunk and he assaulted her and he fired a gun that got so close to her that the bullet actually ripped through her clothing and her clothes are still in police custody to this day. And he fled and he cleared out their bank account and she decided to divorce him and had no resources no idea how she was going to be able to move forward. And that was the state that she came to me in and she became my client. And we were able to get her a protective order and get her a divorce and get her full custody of their son. But at the end of it, there was this law in Kentucky that because her husband was incarcerated, the state had to appoint an attorney for him. And like we were just talking about in civil court cases, you're not guaranteed a public defender. They don't do those types of cases. And so the law actually was that Jeanette, the person trying to get the divorce, actually had to pay the legal fees for the incarcerated spouse. And Jeanette couldn't afford that. I was representing her precisely because she couldn't afford that. And so at the end of all of this, she got this bill saying, this is what you owe so that your husband that assaulted you, that is now in jail for assaulting you, could have an attorney in this process. And I'd seen that play out before and just the way that it made her feel like the system was re-victimizing her and the way that she felt like the system was working more for him than for her in that moment really bothered me and it stuck with me. And so Jeanette and I, after a little bit of time had passed, we decided that we wanted to raise awareness and try to change things. And so at first she wasn't sure that she wanted her name and face associated with it. Right. That's Um, a heavy burden. It is. And I think sometimes people are worried that there's going to be this judgment from their community. You know, a lot of times people don't want to bring the spotlight to things that happen behind closed doors. Yes. And so 
it started off with Jeanette trusting me to tell the story and change her name and write an op-ed for a local paper and sort of start the push. And then as it picked up steam, one of the most amazing things I've ever been a part of was Jeanette decided that she wanted to be the face and she wanted to be the voice and she wanted to tell her story. And it was so powerful to see her testify in front of these legislative bodies and talk about her story and talk about the impact of this system on her, that her bill ended up sailing through the Kentucky General Assembly and the governor signed it into law. And to this day, it is called Jeanette's Law. And it means that survivors of domestic violence no longer have to pay the legal fees for incarcerated spouses. It's incredible that that was the legal setup beforehand. But that's amazing work that you were able to do and that she was able to do by telling her story. And we want to mark that here, that that's an incredible Job well done. Have you you. gotten any feedback or or spoke to any other women that have benefited from the law? Is that still a sphere that you you work in or or talk to folks that are, I'm sure you, you hear? Yeah, I've heard from a lot of legal aid attorneys who have been able to use the law to help their clients and also just a lot of private practice lawyers who take on these pro bono cases and have been able to use it. The work is certainly not done. So this was one example of the sorts of hidden fees in these civil court cases. And there are a lot more that still exist out there and they impact all low-income people, including these low-income domestic violence survivors. So in Kentucky, they still have a commissioner system in a lot of rural courts where people actually have to pay by the minute to have their case heard by a domestic relations commissioner. Mm. And so you can imagine it's a very similar thing when you have someone who is low-income who perhaps doesn't know that there are ways to waive some of these fees or can't figure out how to get some of these fees waived, and they end up getting hit with a several hundred dollar bill just to be able to have their case heard in a court. And so there's a lot of work that's still left to be done. It sounds like it. Mm -hmm. One thing we left out of your introduction, and we talked a little bit before the interview, I said I wanted to ask about this. You're the vice chair of the Kentucky Democratic party. And here's what you wrote in your book. Quote, after November 2016, I realized in a whole new way that elections mattered. It wasn't enough to save the world one family at a time, quote, although you certainly seem to be doing that as well. But what surprised you the most about getting involved in politics? I think it was surprising to me to see the way that people changed the way they looked at me whenever they found out that I was involved in politics. I think in some places, politics is such a dirty word Mm -hmm. and it's such a divisive topic that people that you assume are your friends and you're friendly with kind of give you a little bit of the stink eye whenever they find out that you're not just interested in politics or a political person, but so involved in politics that you're going to become vice chair of the party. And so it's been interesting for me to see the way that people have treated me differently. And I hate that, you know, politics for me really is about how we make our communities better through using elections. I hate that for so many people, I think that's not what it is. Politics is just this structure that exists outside of them that they feel like is not a good system. And it's something that's not contributing to the world in a good way, because I actually I think that politics is uh, the opposite. Right. My favorite definition of politics I learned as a freshman in college in my political theory class, which was who gets what, when, and how. Um, And the definition that we have now ascribed to all the partisan back and forth uh, is something very different than that. But 
your work with Jeanette's Law, your work, all of our work in the law in general can be political in deciding who gets what, when, and how. And I think that a community-based approach also makes sense. Are you happy that you are deeply involved, knowing how people view it, knowing how steeped in partisanship it is? Or is that an inside-the-belt way of thinking and, and it's different where you are? I am happy that I'm involved in politics. I think I've been able to go out into a lot of communities where the Democratic Party used to be very strong in eastern Kentucky, places that Democratic registration still outnumbers Republican registration, but these are areas that also voted very heavily for Donald Trump. And it's an area that a lot of people stereotype. And honestly, I think a lot of people, particularly people leaning to the left, get very frustrated with. And I've been able to go out and have conversations with people who, in many cases, voted for for President Trump and talk to them about their reasons and really begin to understand the complexity and the nuance of decision making in these areas. Mm. And that has been a real privilege to gain that insight because I think a lot of times our media uh, does a big injustice to those areas by just painting them with this broad brush of Trump voters that the rest of us shouldn't care about. I think that happens in my home state, too. I mean, we were always referred to as a, a red state with a blue bubble in Atlanta. But Atlanta and its communities, particularly the black community in Atlanta, is sprawling throughout the state and and is much more purple than it is given credit, although there are certainly deeply red, red areas, too. But uh, I think the South in general gets painted that way. And we're maybe seeing some shift of it in the most recent election in 2018. But I'm curious to see places like Kentucky, what they're going to do with the next round. Although Kentucky also had a big shift in 2018, right? There were several elections that went left. Yeah. So in Kentucky, you know, we were able to flip some state house seats, including some state house seats in Appalachia and uh, flip them from red to blue. And most recently, we had a governor's race in 2019. It was one of the few governor's races across the nation. Right. And we were able to oust a Republican governor and uh, flip that to a, a Democratic governor, Andy Bashir. And so, you know, a big part of that, of course, was turnout in the cities and the cities voting Democrat. But a part of it, too, was people in areas that you wouldn't think, you know, Eastern Kentucky, a lot of these Eastern Kentucky counties actually ended up voting for the Democratic Party, voting for Andy Bashir. And so, you know, I do think you're seeing movement in a lot of these areas turning back towards their Democratic roots. And I think that's a good thing. And I think it's going to lead to some really interesting outcomes in 2020. So all of this certainly begs the question, have you considered running for office? I'm actually running for Metro Council right now. Oh, wow. So I decided to run for Metro Council with a six-month-old baby in part because I think there aren't enough young moms that get engaged mm. in their community. I think women are told you can run for office before you have kids or once your kids are grown. And Absolutely. I think particularly at a local level, when you're talking about things like, you know, city parks and public libraries, I think it's really important to have young women and young moms engaged in the process. So that has been occupying a lot of my time lately. And election day is no November for that race or? Uh, primary is May 19th. Primary is May. And are you are you facing a challenge? Yes, there are two other people in the primary, uh, two men, and I'm the only woman on the ballot. Ah, and is there an incumbent or? 
the incumbent is stepping down, so there is not— um, So it's an open seat. Open seat, yes. And so I think you have to put your money where your mouth is. Mm. And if you believe that elections are how you make your community better, for me it was important to actually step up and run for something because I believe that— Being able to be a decision maker and get to make decisions about your community is a big honor and a big privilege. And it is something that I hope the voters decide to trust me with. So one last question. I just wanted to ask you about this because I know tragically that your your mother passed away recently, the day after you finished writing the book. Yeah. But I wanted to ask about her and her life and her legacy and what the legacy she's left for you and just to the extent you feel comfortable talking about it. I wanted to to have a moment to talk about her. Yeah. My mother was an incredible woman. The day before uh, she died in a car accident, the last thing I had to do was sort of change some of the names in the book from people who had requested it. And so she sent me a list of names of people she grew up with and answered a few other questions and sent me everything that I needed to sort of tie up those loose ends. And then the next day she was on her way to visit me in Louisville and she died in a car wreck on the interstate. I am so grateful that she had a chance to read a draft of the book and that Mm. she felt proud of the way that it depicted her and that she she said that she felt like a proud hill woman and that was exactly what I was trying to do with this book and I recently became a mother myself and I think I'm only now beginning to understand what it must feel like to have a child write a tribute to you and your life and to say how much the choices and decisions that she made changed me. And so I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to tell her both in person and through this book while she was alive, how much she meant to me and how the decisions she had made changed my life and just how much I appreciated it all. Well, we were certainly very happy to read it and and share in in her legacy and and the story. And you are a bright, shining light of that legacy. And and thank you so much for for sharing it in the book and with us. Thank you. The book is called Hill Women, Finding Family and a Way Forward in the Appalachian Mountains. Although Proud Hill Women would be a good alternative title or a a follow-up novel. I like Proud Hill Women, too. That's a good one. I like it as well. Thank you so much for joining us, Cassie. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.